welcome to a very special edition of the In Search SEO Podcast, where we paint the town red with search marketing insights. This week, we are counting down our top 10 moments from 2019. From what is EAT to what are fraggles? These are the top 10 moments from 2019 on the In Search SEO Podcast. I am your host, Morty Oberstein. I am not joined by the suave, by the sophisticated Sapir Carabello. I am flying solo, so it will have to be enough. Um, before we get into any and all of the top 10 moments of the In Search SEO Podcast, do not forget... We put out a new episode of the In Search SEO podcast each and every Tuesday. You can find it on the Rank Ranger blog, you can find it on Stitcher, on Spotify, on SoundCloud, and of course, you may and probably should subscribe on iTunes. Programming note, dee 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 dee. Next week, the 31st, Tuesday the 31st, there will not be an episode because... We are taking a break for the holidays. Uh, we will be back on January 7th, Tuesday, January 7th, with an all-new episode of the In Search SEO podcast featuring the one, the only, the magnificent Jennifer Slag. So tune in for that. You will miss out on some great chat about the quality raters guidelines. Okay. Oh, also, since we plug Rank Ranger, that has not changed. Head over to the Rank Ranger blog. Check out two posts we put out. One is a post featuring all of the research that we put out in 2019. Some great stuff on feature snippets on entity understanding. Uh, also, there's another post you'll see there towards the top of the blog, all about the new tools and reports that Rank Ranger put out in 2019. So definitely check that out. A lot of cool stuff from the feature snippet, a feature snippet from the SERP feature monitor, which helps you track which URLs are winning in featured snippets, um, to metric gauge widgets, to our free schema markup generator, to multifaceted video box tracking where you can see your performance of your domain and your YouTube channel within Google's video box. Check that out on the Rank Ranger blog. Okay, let's get into the top 10 moments on the In Search SEO podcast from 2019. But first, I must do this because I'm a good person fundamentally. I don't do this often enough, and I, I, it's, a, I, it's a critique of myself, but I want to express my deep, deep thanks for the audience, to the audience of this podcast. Um, we've seen the pocket. The numbers have grown amazingly well over the course of 2019. We're very, very excited and very happy about that, and it's all because of you. Um, I really do appreciate, we really do appreciate you tuning in each and every, every week. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a commitment. It's a commitment to listen. For however long you listen for, we do really appreciate it. It does mean a ton to us. It does literally. It means a lot to me. I check those numbers often, um, but thank you very much. It does mean a lot to us, and we do appreciate it. We do not take it for granted at all. I also need to thank my hosts um, over the course of 2019. The great Kim Ragones and of course Sapir Carlobello have been the co-hosts of this podcast. So thank you very much to them. They do way more than you will ever know to keep this show going each and every week. Um, you know what I'm talking about, Sapir and Kim. You know what I'm talking about. Thank you very much. Um, also, big, big, enormous shout-out to the man behind the scenes, the Wizard of Oz himself, Levy, who does the editing of this podcast each and every week. It's a lot of editing. We like to joke around. A lot has to get cut out. Um, so, Levy, thank you very much for all the editing. You do an amazing, amazing job. It, it's amazing. You should hear the like the uncut version of the show versus what Levy puts out. So, Levy, thank you so much. You're doing a great job, which just means way more editing in 2020 for you. 
there you go. Special prize for you, a winner. Okay, okay, one more thing. I didn't choose these top 10 as a way of saying, these are the top 10 best things that came out of the podcast over the course of 2019. It's not like that. I, I chose these 10 because either there was something that really stuck out, really an interesting novel concept that really is very tangible, easy to focus on in, in this sort of format. So a lot of it was formatting for this type of podcast or this type of episode. A lot of it had to do with there's an interesting background story to to the question or to the answer being given to the podcast episode in general. Or there's some nice offbeat and you know, off the SEO path information being shared that I thought was important to share because I like that sort of offbeat information. It's 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 nothing it's it's not a hierarchy of of awesomeness. Okay, there's a million other episodes. Well there's like 52 other episodes that you should check out as, as well. I mean, there's a great interview that with, it sticks out on top of my mind, uh, Jason Barnard, speaking about the underpinnings of structured data and why that's so important. And it is so important to understand. We had a Liz Solis talking about how to go about being an SEO consultant. Really interesting if you if that's your, your niche. Um, Stefan Spencer, we got to a spiritual place understanding how to grow your team. That is a must-listen-to episode, by the way. A lot of cool takeaways on that one. Uh, so the Cameron Jenkins, a personal favorite. That's one of my personal favorite episodes I didn't include in my top 10 where we spoke about the full stack content writer being a content writer that can handle everything. So there's a lot of really, really interesting stuff. I interviewed with Craig Campbell. That was probably the most fun I ever had during an interview. Um, so about Black Hat SEO, so check that one out. We'll list all of these other honorable mentions, if you want to call them that. I hate calling it that, within the blog post that harbors this podcast. Okay, let's get into the top 10. But before I do, another little caveat for you. This is a top 10. However, it's not sequential in any way, shape, or form. In other words, I'm not picking the number 10 is not the most recent number 10, the most recent interview versus number one being the one furthest away. So it's not date sequential. It's not important sequential. Number one is number one because I picked 10 things that I liked, 10 of my favorite things from across the the In Search SEO podcast universe in 2019, and then I just rearrange them in whatever order I put them in. There's no order to this is what I'm trying to say, and I'm being too complicated. But it's okay, number 10 is not any worse than number 9. You get it? We're good? Yes? Okay. With that, here is the top 10 moments from the interviews we did, not from my opening segment, not me rambling on about whatever I think is important, but from the interviews we did in 2019 because you're going to get a little bit of insight into what was actually going on behind the scenes, a sneak peek at what Morty was feeling and thinking as he's scrambling to keep up with some of the guests on the show. You'll see what I mean. Hit that beeping countdown music, because here are the top 10 moments from Rank Rangers In Search SEO Podcast in 2019. Okay, number Okay, to check countdown from 1 to 10 or just do 10 to 1. You know what? Forget it. Number 10. We'll start with 10, even though we're not building up to 1 being the most important. Number 10. Actually, wait. We'll start from 1. You'll see. There's a method to my madness. Okay. Number 1. The first interview we ever did on the In Search SEO podcast was with the wonderful Andrew Optimizey. They say you always remember your first but then again, people say a lot of things that aren't true. In this case, though, I very much remember our first guest who appeared on the In Search SEO podcast, Andrew Optimizey. So, Andrew, thanks for being my first. Thanks for being the first interview we did here. And thanks for being so gentle. Here's Andrew Optimizey. The first question we really ever asked of any substance other than, hey, Andrew, who are you? On the In Search SEO podcast. 
Anyways, let me start off where, where I'm coming from. I'm going to be talking about brands, big brands, little brands, medium-sized brands, and what brands have to do now in the world of SEO to get noticed if you're not one of the big guys. And where I'm coming from with this whole thing, you'll tell me if you disagree, is Google sort of has a sort of at a crossroads. It has a lot of bad press going on about privacy, about fake news, about so forth and so forth, and big brands are safe. Big brands are, you, you know, you know CBS and CNN or whatever it is, they're not going to lie to you. I mean, as much as it goes on in the media that there's fake news, I just realized that as I said that. Okay. okay no um, comment. Right. No comment. This is not, okay. That was not a political comment. That was just simply saying <laughs> CBS News more than likely is not going to outright lie to you. Whether you agree them politically or not, sure. they're not trying to fool you. Or whatever big brand you could possibly think of, Walgreens, um, uh, you know, Johnson & Johnson, whatever content they're putting out, is going to be safe. That's the reason why, for example, in the uh, the health knowledge panel, you don't have mom and pop's website talking about whatever, whatever drugs, you have WebMD or the Mayo Clinic, right? Yeah. So if Google's going to sort of double down on big brands, where does that leave little brands? Well, let's start off with what does Steam do big brands hold in the eyes of Google these days, according to how you see it? And has their stock gone up? Has it not gone up? And where do we hold in the world of brands and, and the SERP? So I agree with what you're saying. And, it's like, and it, if you're in a small business and you're Googling around stuff that you think you should be ranking for and you just see it completely swamped by huge players like the Amazons and the Ebays and Wikipedia and you're just thinking, like, I'm going to never get anywhere with here. Like, you know, right. being on page page one is a dream. Being anywhere near the top three positions just seems completely unattainable. And I kind of agree with your main point about, like, Google favoring big sites and stuff. But a lot of the stuff that I think my kind of take on that is Google hates being wrong. Right. So the reason they tend to favor big brands and stuff is because they more often than not are good enough. And it's uh, that kind of, you know, get, getting stuff done kind of saying that it's like, you know, good enough is good enough. And for Google, then there's, yeah, maybe there's times where they could favor the mom and pop store or they could favor like, you know, the other local business, but there's times when they're not going to do it. And actually, you know what? Most people are pretty happy with Amazon. Most people are pretty happy with, you know, Walmart. Most people are pretty happy with SC Johnson. There's a reason they're massive international players making right. millions and millions of pounds because that everybody knows them. It's that kind of brand familiarity. I mean, you'll get that with a lot of SEOs. They'll talk about, oh, you know, the new keyword is brand. Like, you know, you've right. got to have that kind of familiarity. People need to know who you are before you pop up in the search results because if they see, you know, famous brand, famous brand, famous brand, you, right. why are they going to choose you? Right, which is sort of the flip um, side to all of this because they get, it is what users want to a certain yeah, extent. And it, I mean, and you know, then then you come to that kind of question of you know that is that what users want or is that what Google thinks the users want? And then you know when they don't see any alternatives, how do, how would Google ever know any different? Well, um, that, that's the know, rabbit hole. Google does test it, like you know we've all seen that, like you know when you're in SEO and you launch a new page, and for like three minutes you're on the first page and it's like oh my god, like you know. Alarms start going off everywhere. <laughs> Google's put you in, on the first page, and then you know, two minutes later, you're straight back out again. Two days later. So they, they mess with it, and they're constantly running tests and you know, trying to work out which is a good result. I mean, I'm sure again, lots of people have read about these kind of things when you know, Rand Fishkin did it famously at the conference, right. where you get people to game click-through rates on right, right, right. search result pages, and you know, boom, then you pop up in the rankings. Um, so there's that kind of stuff, and I think so that, that kind of piece about Google hating being wrong, you can see that. They, they scream it at you if you look for all those kind of things. So when you type in a question into Google, you always see that kind of stuff. Like, oh, people also ask this. Right. Well, did you mean, did you mean if you spelled something wrong, like you spelled Barack Obama's name wrong, whatever, it's like, well, did, did you mean this? Right. Or like, we're going to show you results for this, 
but you can also like you know we, we think you mean this but you know if, if that was wrong and you did really spell it correctly and you're just looking for something really obscure we've never heard of then sure you can search for that too but we're going to show you what we think you're doing yeah all well, that kind of stuff is google trying to disambiguate stuff they're saying like you know we're pretty sure you want this but it's kind of bet hedging it's almost like well you know if this didn't quite get you there then maybe this is one of the other questions that people also asked or well you know this is the next thing that people also asked so they're trying to that kind of stuff of course they're trying to keep you on the search results they want to keep you on the google website rather than other people's if they can give you the answer straight there in the surf mm-hmm. and then lead you on to the next question or they've already guessed what your next question is going to be you're spending a bunch of time on google but it's also because they're bet hedging. They, they're not really sure what you want and they want to give you the best results so you don't go, oh, this is junk, I'm going to go to Bing. Number two. Number two. Barry Schwartz. Now, I could pull out the section where Barry, where I asked Barry, and I, I think I made Barry feel maybe a little uncomfortable. If I apologize if, if I did, that was not the intention. Oh, Barry saw the question in advance, so he could have told me. Anyway, um, so I guess not. Apology taken away. Anyway, I asked Barry, who would he go to for information? If he had to choose one Googler, John or Gary? And Barry threw John under the bus and chose Gary. But I don't want to focus on that. And I think that was fair. So I'm not going to do that segment. Instead, I was talking to Barry about the negativity within the SEO community. Yeah, weird, right? Never seen that happen before in the SEO world. Maybe you don't go on Twitter or Facebook. Well, the Facebook groups are weird. Anyway, um, and we're talking about negativity in the SEO world, and I got this gem about someone trying to kill Barry. It's, I don't know. It's insane. Let's cut to it. Do you think it's gotten worse recently, the no. negativity? No, it's always been pretty it's bad. It's always been bad. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a positive. I think it got better, actually. I, I, really? People don't agree with me. But, I mean, at least personally for me, people literally used to, like, threaten me. Like, well, that's literally, terrible. Like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take a gun <laughs> to the next conference and shoot you. I'm like, <laughs> why? I'm like, because I reported about an algorithm update. You're going to go ahead and shoot me? I, I, what's the, what are, why are you guys so angry? I understand why you're angry, but why take it? Wow. It's like shooting the messenger, literally. Right, right, um, right. I haven't received – I used to receive the most hateful, like, emails and messages and tweets and social – you wouldn't believe like the stuff I used. I should have kept a catalog on them. I never did. Um, but it's gotten a lot better for me personally. I'm not sure why. Um, right. Maybe people are just, I don't know, getting numb to all the changes. I don't know. Okay. Okay. Number three. This is a good one. I mean, this is just like I was like, this, this is a nice, you know, juicy behind the scenes one on this. I'm um, Cindy Crumb. We had the great Cindy Crumb. Number three is Cindy Crumb. She came back on the show. Oh, she came back. She was on the show back in February. Um, and we were sitting to talk about one of my favorite, probably actually my favorite topic, um, entities, right? Uh, entities and how Google is looking at the web from a content lens, focus on entities, or as Cindy refers to it, the um, Google's Entity First Index. And it was all going really well. Really, really well. Great stuff. Now, you probably know at this point, that Cindy has a concept called Fraggles, which means that Google um, assimilates indexes, piece of, uh, pieces of content on your page, and, and you know, not the entire page, but a little snippet of content, and then when that piece of content is relevant, it sends it right to the user. I'm uh, sorry, it, give, it offers that to the user, and then when the user clicks on that from the SERP, let's say in a featured snippet, it jumps you right to that section. Um, you've seen this, by the way, with um, AMP, 
if you have an AMP result in a feature snippet, Google was shown showing this feature where if you click where you click on the on the URL, it doesn't take you to the beginning of the page. It jumps you down like a jump leak to this section where the feature snippet content came from. Okay, so we're talking about um, entity-first indexing, and all of a sudden, Sydney, you know, brings up Fraggles. And remember, this is back in February. This was a brand new idea. Fraggles, everyone knows Fraggles now. Okay, but I, I'd seen Cindy mention Fraggles on Twitter, like I vaguely remembered it. Like I've seen that before in the SEO world on Twitter, but I don't really, I didn't look into it at that, at that point yet. So anyway, anyway, um, we're talking about entity-first indexing, and lo and behold, Cindy brings up the idea of Fraggles, and I'm like, what? Fraggles? I seen someone, I'm pretty sure it was you, talk about it on Twitter, but we're doing an interview now. I'm not really ready to talk about that. But hey, you're Cindy Crumb, so we'll talk about it. And I'm like, oh man. I mean, like, I'm like scrambling. I don't know how I'm going to talk about this. And, and so we had a video chat going. And you, Cindy can see me like scramble to my next screen. She's like, are you Googling Fraggles? I'm like, yes, I'm Googling Fraggles. I don't know anything about Fraggles. But it actually turned out to be pretty cool, and it went really well. So note to you people out there doing interviews with people. It's those off-script moments that sort of work. Anyway, here's Cindy Crum talking about Fraggles, and here's me scrambling to figure out what the heck I'm going to talk about. This I was literally sharding my pants a little bit. And um, here, check it out. Cut to it. But before I go, I'm going to play a little game with you. I call it okay, Optimize wait. It or Disavow It. Wait, wait, before we play the game, sure. you, I feel like in our emails you told me that we were going to talk about Fraggles. Can we can we talk about Fraggles? Fraggles for a minute? Yeah, yeah, let's talk about Fraggles. What do you want to talk okay. about? I don't know. Have you read any of the stuff that I've, I've written about Fraggles? Or I have not. You, when I say Fraggle, do you know what I'm talking Are you searching right now? Yes. I can see you. And, and, and the first thing that comes up, obviously, is Fraggle Rock. And I'm frantically searching for Fraggles, and I get Fraggle Rock. Thank you, Google. I didn't even put it in the rockin'. I just get Fraggle oh, Rock. Maybe on. someone else wanted to talk to me about Fraggles. No, it was not me. I want to talk about Fraggles. Okay, let's talk about um, it. Okay, so do some kind of search that would pull up Stack Overflow or some Google documentation or something like that. Okay. Or some some uh, images. Especially, um, what I've been seeing is more and more jump links coming into the search result where Google will have a blue link title tag and then under that it'll say jump to and in the description it'll show like the piece that answers your question. Right. The piece of the page. So it's not the meta description, it's the piece of the page that answers your question. Jump this is to. in Google's properties? It's not only in Google's properties, no. Interesting, hold on one second. So let's um, And so Fraggle is a word that I made up that takes fragment and handle and puts them together to Fraggle. Okay. And now, remember how I said that um, Google doesn't want to index your whole podcast, just the good stuff? That right. They understand. So now they can segment um, it out? Yeah, same thing with text, though, um, and answers and stuff like that. It, I think mobile-first indexing is the entity-first indexing, but entities doesn't need URLs. Oh, like, they okay. They can just take fraggles. So now I picture the Google crawler running around the web. Oh, that's interesting. Fraggles. So you're saying the whole way they crawl, the whole the, everything has changed? Yeah. That's the unbelievable. Whole, no, I mean, they can crawl this. Okay, number four, Allie Berry. Allie Berry came on the show in June, and this is one of my favorite interviews. I love interviews where there's like, it's just like, just laid back. I feel totally comfortable. They feel totally comfortable. At least I, I think she did. And they just go really well. 
and she's a wonderfully nice person, really, really nice person, and it just, you know, it, it worked. The interview worked. I felt like it worked. Um, she's super knowledgeable, super nice, and awesome. Now, she came on to talk about expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness. You might know that as EAT. And one of the f- amazing things that she did in this interview was, and just to start off, was, well, let me explain the difference between expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness. I'm like, what? Yeah, you sh- no one's ever really done that. I've never seen that before. Yes, please do that. So here is Ali Berry explaining the difference between the E, the A, and the T. Cut it. So let's start off a bit general, make sure everybody's on the same page, so to speak. So we're talking about expertise, authoritativeness, and, and trust. And how do you go about doing that? What are the some uh, what are some of the basics or some of the foundational things you must do if you want to create a solid EAT profile? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I feel like EAT is it's, it's a little squishy in that when you're creating expertise, you're going to create authoritativeness at the same time and trust. It's kind of all related. But things nice. that I think matter for all three. So obviously having experts who are creating your content or are at least involved in your content process, uh, pretty important because, you know, the, if you actually have people who know what they're talking about, they're going to create better content than if you have just your SEO content marketing team who's trying to learn finance and also create quality content. Like it's just really hard to compete. So I think actually having experts in your content strategy is super important from an authoritativeness perspective. I feel like authoritativeness is more about like showing your expertise. So having, you know, really good bio pages for all of your content creators, having a really strong about page that's, you know, who you are, what you're about, why people should trust you, like having that information explicit on your site. And then anything you can do, like if your company has won awards or your people have, or, you know, you have customer testimonials, third-party reviews, having all of that stuff on your site, I think is also important too. And then from a trust perspective, you know, making sure that your site is secure seems like a no-brainer. Having really good quality links, I feel like that's going to be a huge trust component too if other sources are, are linking to you as an expert that tells Google a whole lot about you. And then just having error-free content too, I think that goes a long way. By the way, that's the first time I've ever heard somebody actually break down the difference between each element of eat. So I, I very much thank you for that. And I think my audience thanks you for, thanks you for that because that was very succinct, very clear, and very needed, I think. Oh, good. Number five, Egal Stoltner. Um, I'm a very qualitative person. I like qualitative analysis, abstract analysis, blah, 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 blah. So it's fitting that we had Egal Stoltner on. He is an amazing speaker, um, particularly on the topic of competitive analysis. So it was fitting that I would ask Egal all about um, how to qualitatively analyze your competition, and you would get this really prolific answer. There's way more in the actual episode, so go back to the actual episode if you want and and definitely check this one out um, because it's awesome. So here's Egal talking about qualitative analysis when doing competitor analysis. Cut to it. Yo. From that, from quantity, I want to jump to quality for a second because we spent a lot, a lot of time in the industry talking about um, competitor analysis from a quantitative point of view. And we have all sorts of, of ways for doing this, right? You know, who sells more than I do, who ranks higher than I do, and so forth, who's got more followers, whatever it is. And I have a, I have a problem with this because 
it's really, really easy to, to get hung up on, on that because it's easier to qualify it. It's easier to identify who your competitors are from a quantitative point of view, right? If I'm a social media, this guy has more followers than I do. If I'm selling products, they sell more products than I do. And that's easy from a certain perspective. But how do you go about looking at your competitors from a qualitative perspective, right? What's their, what's their overall threat level? And how do you do that at scale? Another, let me give you, um, let me give you an example, right? Um, a tool can tell you, for example, who, it, who has more traffic than you do or who's ranking higher than you do. What it can't tell you is if that traffic that they're getting is quality traffic. Or, it can't, or for example, let's say someone ranks higher than you in the SERP. Great. They're number one or you're number five, whatever it is, and they get all the traffic. But you have no idea really if they have a terrible bounce rate because they have a terrible UX. So how do you look at competitor analysis from a qualitative perspective? Okay, so first of all, we have to go back for a second and discuss how SEO tools, the same tools that we always go back to, how they even identify competitors. So they don't really know everything you know as a business owner or even as a marketer from a company. They just see what happens within the SERPs. Right. So if these websites, they appear next to me again and again and again, they're more likely to be my competitors. And very often it works, or for the very least, very often it's a good starting point, right? Right, most definitely. But I'll tell you this, from there you have to look manually. And one thing that I keep seeing pretty often is that a lot of SEOs, or at least SEOs around me, they are studying websites only by tools, only by looking at the tools. Mm -hmm. But have they registered? Have they read content? Did they buy from this website? Did they... Even just, you know, play with it, like go through the site, see what's going on and understand the, the true features or like the true value of these websites. That's something that I feel like a lot of marketers are still missing because, as you said, you may rank higher eventually, but is that your really business goal? And one thing that we know is that almost everything that we do in SEO, whether you are an in-house or an agency, is eventually a question of the business goals. In the end, there's an, uh, a CEO who will give you an okay or will not give you an okay for this project, which means that this is where it starts and you have to connect the things. You have to connect both the SEO competitors from a service perspective to what makes sense for your business. And by the way, you've mentioned UX and I think that UX is something that we are completely overlooking in search. But UX at the end of the day is not just whether this button is orange or green or is it bigger or smaller it's about the whole experience and we kind of understand that in search because it's like part of who we are because one thing that we do as SEOs is we use the web a lot but I feel like we need to look a little bit deeper maybe sit with our product folks maybe understand the features better and see like okay is that truly uh, an opportunity is this really even a threat and how many times you're hearing about a website that's supposed to be your competitor, but the company, the CEO, the boards of directors, they don't even care about this website. So like you have to connect all these things together. Number six, Mark Traphagen. I love Mark. I could list all of the great things that Mark talked about. Um, Mark talked about in the episode, how Google's now a discover engine and what it means to create content and, and, and market content in the age of Google being a discover engine. Really interesting conversation again. We'll link to the post, uh, to the episode, so check it out. But the thing that stuck out to me from that interview was Mark, a little known fact, I guess, maybe, is that Mark used to be a, a teacher. So we, and I used to be a teacher. So I'm like, hey, I used to be a teacher. I used to be a teacher. This is perfect. So we go into a little back and forth um, about our previous backgrounds and how they've impacted 
us being SEOs or marketers, that sort of thing. And I thought it's really relevant. I think it's really relevant because most of us coming into SEO, don't. there's no, I went to Harvard to the SEO program and I have a master's in SEO. Right, so we come into from all sorts of different directions, and sometimes I think that makes us feel like, well, maybe I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm an imposter, imposter syndrome, right? A very hot topic in the SEO world because no one comes in saying, okay, I have, a, my, I have my bachelor's in SEO, I got my master's in SEO, I have my PhD in SEO. Here's my thesis on SEO. So they're sort of like, well, we come from here, I came from from here, I came from from there. So it's nice to hear how you can use your background to further develop and as a strong point, as a, as a foundation for what you're doing in SEO. Cut to it. So I heard a, a, a rumor that you used to be a teacher. Is that true? Or did I get that totally wrong? Uh, my students might contest that and their parents <laughs> might really protest it, but yes, it was true. I was, I was a classroom teacher for, uh, for over 15 years. Oh, wow. Nice. So I used to be a teacher myself for three years, another lifetime. And my teach my my parents and my students would say the same thing about me. So we're, we're in the same boat. <laughs> so uh, do you feel like that? Uh, here I am already interviewing you, right? right? Do you feel like that had some good preparation for what you do now? Because because I really do. Yeah, a hundred percent. I'm I I like interweaving my educational background because I mean what what I do is educate. I write. I, I do this podcast, and it's all about breaking down complex information so that it's accessible to people. Yes, feel now, exactly the same way. Yeah, I love it. Like, yeah, the classroom training and just having to be on every day now helps me with not only things like this, you know, doing this and speaking at conferences and, and writing content, but also in uh, interacting with clients, everything I do, it's always an educational experience. So right. it was it was great experience, great background. Yeah. Yeah, the, the teaching thing definitely, it, I've had some business experience in another, in another lifetime before that lifetime, and that has nothing to do with SEO. But the educational background that I have, I, I feel it does, it's done wonders for me being able to, to be who I am now. I, I still view myself as a teacher, primarily, which is weird. Yeah, I, I absolutely do as well. Totally identify. Number seven. Number seven. Lee Raz Poston. I'm a big Lee Raz Poston fan. And congrats to her, by the way. She just had a new baby. So, congrats. Also, really big for her in 2019. Just as big as having her baby was um, our interview on the In Search SEO podcast. I'm sure it's right up there. I had the baby. I was on the In Search SEO podcast. Which one was more significant? It's hard to tell. But anyway, during our interview, we talked about KPIs. And I'm a big fan of there being a lot of junk KPIs out there that we tend to focus on as opposed to looking at the real metrics that we should be focused on or how to use them in the right ways as opposed to, hey, look at my numbers. They're like, sky. I'm really popular. It's, it, okay, we sort of use these metrics like I'm a popular, as a popularity, popularity contest. I can get words out. Um, so I asked Lee Raz her thoughts on the matter, and here's Lee Raz posting on which metrics matter most. To it. So let's talk about metrics. Everyone likes, we're in marketing, we're in SEO, we're in content. Everyone wants to talk about data. Um, how do you, okay, there's so many different um, KPIs that you can consider and, and, and look at and determine how your content is doing. When looking at content marketing, okay, what KPIs do you consider to be vanity metrics? Because I think so many of them are. Oh, yeah, but I think for it comes when it comes to vanity metrics, um, we should keep it simple. I'm looking for raw page views. This is how I know just how my content performs. And then I look for downloads, registered users, any type of conversion that basically my, um, my content is doing, mm -hmm. or let's say type of engagement. 
Um, this is simple as vanity metrics. Okay, so then let me ask you more specifically then, how do you separate metrics mm-hmm. like, uh, like bounce rate, time on page, and, and, and so forth when dealing with various types of content since they don't equally apply to each content category? For example, if, you're gonna, if your web page is just meant to be a quick stop, is a, a short paragraph there, then the time on the page is obviously going to be much less than an in-depth article, let's say a medical article. People are going to really read through that. So how do you separate that out? Mm-hmm. Well, basically, I group different types of content and then comparing the metrics for each one. So, for example, some content should have higher bounce rate and low time and size metrics, and some, let's say, more interactive content should have more engagement. This is what I'm aiming for when my in, when I'm doing my reporting. So, let's say I have like a, an interactive uh, quiz in, inside my uh, blog post. So, mm-hmm. I would see there in analytics for sure a lot of time on site, people more engaged, um, a scroll depth maybe. But when it comes, I don't know, to other blog posts, they have different other metrics, and I try to group them into uh, separate uh, and separate them in, in my reporting. That's a great idea. I mean, so you're basically aggregating all of the different types of content and creating a baseline out of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a great mm-hmm. idea. Brilliant. Number eight. I feel like we should have a thing, like you know, like um, we have these like countdown videos, like the. the Sports people will know this. The NFL channel has these, you know, countdowns, top 10 tight ends in NFL history. And they have like a really like cool way of saying the numbers like number eight. And it's like all these like sound effects to it. We don't have any of that. So I'm sorry. I feel like we should. And it's perfect to mention that because Carolyn is a big Atlanta Falcons fan, which is better than being a Patriots fan. Anyway, Carolyn is one of my favorite people in SEO. She's just nice, smart, easy to get along with. And she also happens to have a really nifty idea called a content matrix, which she shared with us right here on the InSearch SEO podcast. So have a listen. Talking about personal experience, when I used to teach, there was this idea of backwards planning, which which I always hated. But anyway, it was a big thing. So you basically, you start off with the assessment, the test, and what questions you want the students to be able to answer by the time you're by the time you're done teaching them. And you basically create content, you create lesson plans that hit on those questions. Okay, so this is this of course is basically a great idea. It sounds like a great idea when creating a content pillar. You start off with what do you want the audience to know, what do you want your users to know, what problems are they facing, and what do you what do you want them to walk away with in terms of solutions. Except that I found when I was actually doing this, when I was teaching, creating uh, when creating teaching units that it completely stifled creativity at certain points. And it lends itself to a certain amount of inflexibility. So obviously having that goal in mind is is a big deal and it's important you have to do that. But at the same time, to what extent should you backwards plan when creating a content pillar? In other words, how effective is it to to first think about what channels you want to hit and with what sort of content? And what are the pitfalls you have to be careful when doing that? Yeah, so in my previous job, the SEO department was separate from the content department. So we this actually came up very frequently because you'd like the SEO team would be like, this is what you need to do. You need to hit these bullet points. Everything needs, like, key, you need keywords in your titles. You need to do this. You need to do that. And the content team was like, but we want freedom. Like, we need to be creative. And, you know, like, you're stifling us, that sort of thing. So we had to sort of, like, meet in the middle and figure out the best ways that, yeah, the SEO boxes were checked but the the content team felt that they had the freedom that that we weren't like prescribing everything that they should write and in that case they would have been like well then you just write it because like (laughs) we don't want to write (laughs) this from your point of view so one way that we sort of figured out a good middle ground was we came up with this content matrix which i sort of referenced earlier which is where we put in 
we have this, so every quarter we have an overarching theme, essentially. So our theme this quarter is we're really targeting these specific groups. And for each of those groups, we come up with a set of pain points. Like, what are the actual, let's go talk to these people. What are their actual pain points? So this is sort of like the backup, like you were saying, or like planning things out in advance so that we can know what actually resonates with people and sort of have like, this is the end goal is we're going to solve these pain points for you or show how that our how our product or service solves these pain points for you. So with that in mind, we would sort of create a pillar for each individual target audience, like I mentioned before, and then just line out the pain points essentially in rows. So the pillars in a, in a spreadsheet would be the columns. The rows across would be maybe four pain points for a specific audience in that or a specific target audience. And so we'd say like maybe for, you know, if we're targeting agencies, what are their actual pain points? We think their pain points are this, but we go and talk to them. And it's really that like they want to increase retainers and they deal with client turnover and communication is a big thing. So how can we at the top of the funnel address those pain points? Like, yeah, man, that really sucks. How can we in general address your pain point and say, this is the top of funnel way that we would address that. And so we would just be like, here's the pain point content team. You know what SEO is looking for. And here are the questions that people ask around it. So actual user feedback. Here are what people go online to search when they search for this specific topic at the top of funnel. And you figure out how you answer that. However, you know, like fits your creative boat, whether it's like a, you know, click baby buzzfeed thing, like five ways to increase your client retainer for agencies, or it's like just a how to do this with step-by-step sort of thing. Like, what do you think works best? with your like creative content perspective. So it's like giving people the tools and then letting them build whatever they need to build with that um, information. Number nine, Nati Eli Melech. Oh, there's so many things you could say about Nati. Most of which you can't repeat to an audience under the age of 18. Um, great guy, awesome SEO, avid lover of baseball, which is bizarre because he's not American, but he loves baseball. Stats, teams, anything you want to know about baseball, hit not the Ellie Melech up. A link to his Twitter profile. I'm um, definitely ask him about baseball questions on Twitter. He would very much appreciate that. Go for it. Okay, that aside, um, Nutty is a freak about SEO automation. I mean, he's also sort of a, but yeah, he's a freak about SEO automation. And we had him on the show, and we're going into, you know, how. How big of a task does it need to be before it's automated? And Nutty asked me, okay, are you good at math? And the answer is no. No, I'm terrible at math. I actually taught math, and we, we talk about it in the podcast. My, my students learned nothing about math that year. I'm not sure what boneheader principal said, yeah, you should teach math. No, I shouldn't teach math. Anyway, um, I'm not good at math. I don't like math. I'm okay with, like, data and research. I'm actually pretty good with that. I just don't like math. It doesn't make any sense. I understand that. Anyway, so we're talking about, um, you know, how big of a task does it need to be before you you decide to go ahead and automate it? And he says, okay, are you good at numbers? I'm like, no. He said, okay, well, keep track and keep up with my calculations. I show you how time can add up even with small tasks. And I'm like, great. And I literally have a calculator. I'm like, oh my God. And he's rambling off, you know, this takes two minutes and that takes five minutes. And this, I'm like, to calculate and go, oh my God, I have no idea. Did he just say five minutes or he say three minutes? I, I don't know. I have no idea what he just said. He was talking fast. 
And he goes, okay, what'd you come up with? And I think I gave, I don't remember I gave him a number, but like, or, or if he just asked, okay, you got the total there? And I, I might have lied and said yes. Because it was flying. Well, anyway, um, here's me and Nati talking about the size of automated tasks and doing a lot of math and me scrambling around trying to add up numbers. So that's fun. Cut to it. So that's a great point because how do you figure out the value of that trade-off? Because obviously these tools aren't free for the most part. So when do you know, okay, you know what, it's like this task is it's small enough, I'll let it go, I'll let it slide versus, okay, it may be a small task and I have to pay for the tool, but it's worth it. Ah, all right. Okay, so how are you with numbers? Do you like math? Oh, man, don't, don't. I have a calculator. So yeah, do all, all the right. math you so, want. So you've been a history teacher, you've been an English teacher. Right, but teacher. Not, I actually taught math for one year to like fifth graders that was horrible the worst year of my life so the, the there's like a year of students that if came out with no no, no math they know math, nothing no we learn history knowledge. instead yeah they can't count past 11. they basically you know take the garbage out they do dishes they 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 clean restaurants <laughs> no no they're historians they're historians now oh historians yeah yeah so, they, yeah, they, that, they, that's they what i said yeah 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 they yeah. can't do math uh, all right isn't that what historians do anyway um <laughs> exactly so, okay, this is going to surprise you. I'm going to, let's try and calculate how a menial te test really takes. So let's talk about checking a page speed score, okay? okay. Uh, let's pretend page speed score actually matters as much as people assume right, it does. Right, exactly, okay. Um, <laughs> that's, and, another, that's another story. And, we, and we've decided it's important when we need to do it frequently. So if I ask you how long it takes you to manually check a URL page speed score. How long would, what would your answer be? Couple of seconds. Couple of seconds. All right. I, I knew you'd say something like that. I wouldn't say a couple of seconds, but I, I've got to tell you, everyone thinks that everything takes about five to 10 minutes. We <laughs> always assume things take, take less time than they actually do. Okay. And that's, a, that's actually a thing. It's called the, the planning fallacy. Look it up. I will. I'm going to write it down. Uh, whenever we do something, whenever we, we try to to evaluate the cost, uh, being it time, money, or other resource, we actually think it's going to take us less time than it ever does. Right. So let, let's do some math. Um, okay. I hated numbers in high school. I hated them at university, and now I love them. So really? How did that? Ha I just want to know how did that happen? Because now they're a tool at my disposal. <laughs> it's not a chore, so I'm not forced into using them. Right. One one day by me. One day by me. Exactly. Right. So, so let's break down the process of manually checking a URL's page speed score. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I, I, I we'll see that actually everything we think is one action is, is is a lot of smaller actions, a set of smaller actions. So basically, what's your first step? You 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 want to go out. You want to go and check a URL. What do you do? What's your first step in that process? Oh, you gotta pick which well pick the URL you want. But fine. All uh, right. Let's let, let, let's load it. Okay, so basically, your actual first step is to sign in and open some sort of a tool, Google or Google Drive, right? And get the URL you need to monitor, right? Right, right, true. So that's step one. So you need to log in into into the tool. You need to find the file you're looking for. Uh, you actually need to find the URL in that list in the, on that file. Okay, so I, let's I skipped all those steps. Yeah. Okay, that's true. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. so that's two minutes, right? Okay, that's true. That is two minutes. Yeah. Because yeah. you'll never you find have... on the first try where I put the file. Where is this file? Like a four million folder? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
so step one and two is actually opening that that whatever wherever your file is. Step two is actually finding the file. Uh, then you have to open PageSpeed Insights tool to actually open it uh, via the, the the online tool or right. the audit tab in Chrome. You have to paste that URL and you have to start that audit. That audit ranges from 30 seconds to sometimes over a minute. Um, so let's say like two or three more minutes, right? Okay. Right. So now you get the score. You actually checked the page score of a URL, but that doesn't stop there. You have <laughs> you, to record it. Depending on what the score is, you, you have to do something with it, right? Right. Let's say if it's lower than 65 on mobile, you have someone from the tech team have a look at it. And that's when the process is over, right? Yeah, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I am I said, setting you up. That's a trick up. question. I, I am question. setting you up. It is wrong. You should have <laughs> said that's right. You ruined the entire flow. Okay, so that's wrong. Uh, um, <laughs> basically, to make that someone from the tech team have a look at it, you need to either send an email with all the relevant details or open a task, a course, a card, or whatever it's called on your project management system and assign it to the correct person. Let's say you're a super fast typer and can do it in under seven minutes. You know, you've okay. logged in into everything, you've sent an email, you've documented the details, blah, 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 blah. So let's sum up. That's roughly 20 minutes per year. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're about right. You're about, I have like 17, 18 minutes here. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's, you know, if, if we're generous, it's even 15 minutes. Okay. So, okay. So if you say it's about 20 minutes per URL, let's say you had your two-step authentication uh, on the way to, for you, when you wanted to log in, it took a bit more time. And let's say you need to one, monitor 100 different URLs, right? <laughs> we, we actually monitor thousands right. of different websites. Yeah. And you want to be doing that once a week in a perfect world, in a perfect reality, when you actually achieve everything you want to achieve during that week. So we've got 20 minutes per URL, right? Four times a week, uh, four times a month, once a week, and times 100 URLs. That's, <laughs> let me know, 8,000 minutes. Right. Okay. 8,000 minutes. 8,000 minutes. I, I think you, roughly... pro you proved your point. No, I'm going on. You're going <laughs> <laughs> to rub it in. I'm going to drill it. On. So <laughs> 8,000 minutes are roughly 130 hours a month, right? Okay. I'm gonna that's trust almost you. a full-time job. Ah, perfect. That's exactly so what that's I want to do a job on. That's, that's almost the person doing that one and only thing, that one task. If you actually wanted to do it at that frequency, each and every single day, that's one person doing just that. Right. So if you do it right, scale doesn't matter. Analyzing one URL takes as much time as analyzing 100, 1,000, 10,000. That's true. So that's the point of SEO automation in my view. Number 10. Greg Gifford. I mean, the man is a pop culture god. His knowledge of 80s and 90s pop culture is everything I aspire to be. Legendary. Um, he's a pretty damn good SEO who rules the local speaking circuit plug. I will get to, I'm pretty sure I saw this. I'll get to see him and speak with him at SMX West. So check that out, plug for SMX West. Um, anyway, uh, there's a ton of confusion out there about the size of Google Posts. So what better person to ask uh, about the size of your images for Google Posts than Greg Gifford? So a lot of confusion about it until there wasn't because Greg came along. Here you go. Have a listen. 
on on this on the flip side of that, right? So you have you have your your text, your copy, and you have your images. And I know there's a, there's a ton of debate. I myself have seen a, a gazillion different recommendations of what size image you should use, but I know you have a real solid recommendation. Can you enlighten us? Yeah, we. The the problem is when posts first rolled out, it was a different dimension. So a lot of people, you know, immediately went out and wrote blog posts and did videos and said this is the size, and no one ever really came back and updated it. And the we did a lot of testing once they've changed it, and now the ideal size is actually twelve hundred by nine hundred. Uh huh. That okay. That that's it. So that's that's the best thing that's going to fill the window, and you know, is the closest to what's going to appear so that you can kind of have a little bit more control over what's visible after it crops. Number 11. Yes, number 11. I said top 10, but I'm including 11 because that's my prerogative. I have control of the mic. And like I said before, I'm not good with numbers. But when I want my podcast to go the extra notch, I turn it up to 11. Those of you Spinal Tap fans will get that. Those of you who are not Spinal Tap fans, like Sapiro, has no idea what I'm talking about right now. We'll be like, why is he talking about Spinal Tap 11? Yeah, you turn your amp up to 11. I want everyone to go and turn their amps up to 11. Like, there's no 11 on the amp. It's just 10. That's the point. Anyway, um, last up is Nikki Mosier, who I will also be seeing and speaking with at SMX West. So check her out. She will be at SMX West. Anyway, um, so we're staying on the local train with Nikki Mosier, who I love because she appreciates a good football franchise, uh, meaning she's not a Jets fan. She's also a fantastic local SEO. So it's number 11, and no one can count, but here it is anyway. Here's Nikki Mosier talking about SERP features, local SERP features that maybe businesses sort of gloss over. Have a hear what Nikki had to say. Cut to it. Let me let me ask you. So, can you? I know there's so many. The thing about local surf features is that there's there aren't so many of them. You have your local panel, you have the local um, the local pack, you have the local finder. Yeah, you have to discover more places, carousel, those sort of things. But within each of these features, there's just so many different elements, particularly in the in the knowledge panel, the local panel. Uh, one of the things I see, for example, that people overlook, and I know I know Macy's does a great job with this, and a bunch of other department stores do a great job with this, is the events. You can actually list events and have them show up in the, in the knowledge panel. For example, if, if Macy's has someone coming in to um, do a makeup demonstration, they have that as an event. On October 23rd, there's going to be a makeup demonstration. There's a cologne sampling, right? That's listed as an event, and that's really, really interesting. Um, and you can obviously attract a lot of people into what your business is doing with that sort of thing, and people just aren't using it. They're not doing it. Besides that or something else, what are some things that, because there's just so many different elements within the local features, are businesses just missing the boat on? Obviously, we said with the Q&A feature and beyond that. Yep. Yeah, no, I think you definitely nailed it with events. Um, I think a lot of people aren't taking advantage of that. Uh, you can. It, it's definitely tricky. I've had some struggles, and I know some other people have had the same issue on Twitter, um, of getting events to populate with event schema just because there's so many nuances to it. Um, I'm fi- definitely finding that things like Eventbrite and Meetup are pulling into the listing pretty automatically, which is nice. Um, and then Google, there was just a post on Search Engine Land on Monday morning that now anyone can ev- add events to the Google My Business listing from the contributor dashboard. It looks like it's pretty Android specific only, mm-hmm. but at the moment, but that's a little scary actually that um, kind of like the Q&A feature that it can be user generated. So it'll be definitely interesting to see kind of what happens with that feature. 
And then I think videos are definitely underused in the mm. Google My Business listing. We know that Google loves video. Google wants to see video, especially video from YouTube, um, <laughs> showing up in the search results. So getting video on your Google My Business listing is a great way to give users a full idea of what they are going to experience when they walk in your door. Um, and it makes Google happy. So it's kind of a win-win there. And then the products, the products and services menu, um, I feel like that's pretty underused, especially when you look at, I think obviously things like Home Depot and REI do a really great job of adding in their product feed, which I think can come in like through the API and stuff and pull in those products to the Google My Business listing on mobile. But looking at like home services businesses and things like that, I think there's really an opportunity there to kind of get more of that information out in front of users. Uh, obviously, re restaurants do a pretty great job of having their menu um, in the listing. But as far as service menus and that kind of thing, I think there's definitely an opportunity to utilize that feature more fully. Okay, folks, that was my top 10, 11 interview moments on the InSearch SEO podcast of 2019. There were many other great moments. So have a look back at our 52 other episodes. Yes, this is episode 53. I can count again. Not great at math but I can count. Um, have a look back at our other 52 episodes. Have, have a listen, have a peek, shoot me some questions if you want. I'm happy to chat about anything we discuss about over the course of the year in 2019. Again, thank you all so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Again, we could not do this show without you. We very much appreciate you listening each and every week. And don't forget, there is no InsurgeSEO podcast next week. Um, check us out again. We will be back on January the 7th. Have a great, great holiday season. I'll talk to you soon. It's been in search because we're all in search of something. Toodles.